0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, of the changing times. The things that we can all do, do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Stumble there a because I, I thought about something as I was introducing this show. Like, I've been doing this show for over ten years now, and I have always say, you know, one man's view. Of the and when I started this show, it was really one man's view. I guess it's still sort of one man's view, because I'm the guy that's in charge of doing all the broadcasting and putting everything together and what have you, but... Uh, especially a show like today, it's it's not one man's view. It's um, well, it's six men's view, and actually it's f- uh, five men's view, and and two women's view today because we have the expert council on a Friday because it is what is it Friday Friday Friday? That's right. It's time for the monster show of the week, the expert council Q and A show. I've got Gary Collins, Nick Ferguson, Sean Mills, Michael Jordan, Nicole Sauce, Doctor Kelly. Tim Glantz, and me, myself, and I, Jack Speerco, on the lineup for you today. We got how grains affect type 2 diabetes from Gary Collins. Gardening if you have a black thumb and kill everything with Nick Ferguson. I had a special announcement about Nick, by the way, today. Uh, battery storage considerations with Sean Mills. More on medicinal meads with the bee whisperer and mead maker himself, Michael Jordan. Developing ex- ex- effective messaging for your brand with Nicole Awesome Sauce. The expense of vaccinating your animals with Dr. Kelly. Building an overlander trailer with an M101 series military trailer from Tim Glance of Old Grouch Military Surplus. And I got a question for me. Do you really need 25 grand to start a homestead? Not counting the land and the property and the house. You know my answer is going to be effing no, but we'll talk a little bit about where that question comes from. And a problem we have in the world today with people that think they're helping... But they're not. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's take a look at this day in history. We're going to go back to the year 1781, October the 19th. October the 19th, for Americans, should be a day that we actually pay attention to something, if we care about our history. And if we say things like, hey, you know, the 4th of July, yeah, man, that's you know, America's Independence Day and stuff like that. Because October the 19th is one of the most monumentous days in the history of the United States in the year 1781, and it really is, in some ways, our true Independence Day. What happened in 1781 on October the 19th? Victory at Yorktown. Hopelessly trapped at Yorktown, Virginia, British General Lord Cornwallis surrounds uh, is surrounded with 8,000 British troops and seamen, uh, surrenders. I'm sorry. It surrenders 8,000 British soldiers and seamen to a larger Franco-American force, effectively bringing an end to the American Revolution. General George Washington instructed the Marquis de Lafayette, who was in Virginia with an American army of around 5,000 men, to block Cornwallis's escape from Yorktown by land. In the meantime, Washington's 2,500 troops in New York were joined by a French army of 4,000 men under the Count de Rochambeau. Uh, Washington and Rochambeau made plans to attack Cornwallis with the assistance of a large French fleet under under Count de Grasse. And on August 21st, they crossed the Hudson River to march south to Yorktown. Covering 200 miles in 15 days, the Allied force reached the head of the Chesapeake Bay in early September. Meanwhile, a British fleet under Admiral Thomas Graves failed to break French naval superiority at the Battle of Virginia Capes on September 5th, denying Cornwallis' expected reinforcements. Beginning on September 14th, De Grasse transported Washington and Rochambeau's men down the Chesapeake to Virginia, where they joined Lafayette and completed the encirclement of Yorktown on September 28th. De Grasse landed another 3,000 French troops carried by his fleet during the first two weeks of October. The 14,000 Franco-American troops gradually overcame the fortified British positions with the aid of De Grasse's warships. A large British fleet carrying 7,000 men set out to rescue uh, Cornwallis, but it was too late. On October 19, General Cornwallis surrendered 7,087 officers and men, 900 seamen, 144 cannons, 15 galleys, a frigate, 30 transport ships, pleading illness. He did not attend the surrender ceremony, but his second-in-command, General Charles O'Hara, carried... Cornwallis's sword to the American and French commanders, as the British and Hessian troops marched out of the surrender uh, out, of, out to surrender, the British band played the song "The World Turned Upside Down." indeed, And I, I've always considered that Cornwallis was so humiliated, he, he turned to his second and had him surrender his sword, because it was such a crushing defeat to be defeated by this group of colonists and their French allies. That he just he just I don't think he was actually sick. I think he's full of crap. Um, and the war did not end on this day, uh, as you might expect. Sometimes if you watch movies about it, all they kind of make like it, it's the end, and, and it it was it really was the end of things um, in any meaningful way. There was no really nothing left that ever happened on uh, American soil until the War of eighteen twelve that involved the British ever again in conflict. But there was actually still some war on the seas between the navies of, of the, the, the colonies, which uh, at this point are the states, uh, and the French and the British. But by 1782, negotiations began, and the war officially ends September 3rd, 1783, with the Treaty of Paris. And uh, so this is a big deal, right? This is This is every bit as big a deal as the 4th of July, and really the the real date that we should celebrate for that the last signature went down on the Declaration of Independence on August second my birthday um, but this is this is when we could really say we were independent because that independence was immediately challenged with military force, and we had to fight a very long eight year war to actually earn the independence that we had declared eight years earlier and began fighting for ten years earlier and 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 there's a little lesson in this. Is the, is, this is the, the, the information I'd like to send to the microwave generation of Americans. We have no understanding of what true struggle to achieve something means every, anymore. People throw a fit and a tantrum when they don't get what they want today. It, 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 a long time ago when I was a little boy, I went to uh, a diner that my grandmother worked as a waitress at. And I got some apple pie. And she said, you want some apple pie? And I said, yeah, and they got a little spinny thing, and the pie spins around. Yeah. And she says, well, you want it hot. I said, is it, what is it? And she said, now it's, it's ice cold. It's in the thing. It's ice cold in there. I said, well, yeah. How long is it going to take? She said, not long. And she took this little plate of apple pie, and she walked back. And it seemed like maybe 10 seconds. It was probably closer to 30 because I wasn't paying attention. Watch pot kettle boiled. You know how that works. Uh, but it was like almost immediately, she sets it down, and it was like piping hot. And I had never seen a microwave in my life. I didn't know what one was. They existed. People had them, but we didn't. And um, I said, how did you do that? And she said, it's a microwave. And I remember very clearly saying, like little kids will, wow. And you see, no one is impressed with anything anymore. No one's like, wow, or gosh, I can't believe that anymore. We we have come to expect everything to be now in immediate. And we need to remember that all of the things that we've done that were meaningful, that were actually advancing society forward, advancing humankind forward. Putting a man on the moon took over a decade. It took about a decade since, you know, from the time Kennedy said it. But the work that went into it was 25 years. It, 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 it took five years to end World War II. It, it, everything we ever did took time. How long did it take the Wright brothers from the idea to make an airplane to make one fly a Kitty Hawk? And then how long did it take to make a plane that could fly across the country? And we've lost all of that. And we've lost a sense of value in what we have in this republic because these men that gave us this republic fought that war that was really a bloody 10-year war. In so many ways, with so much sacrifice. I wonder how much sacrifice people would give for a year for freedom today, let alone for 10. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, Like I said, today we are going to uh, have calls for the expert council. The first one up I have for you today is for Gary Collins, and it is a question on whole grains and type 2 diabetes.
2: Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the com. Make sure to go check it out to make your life easier and simpler. But uh I don't know if Jack read you the title of this article, but it is a study called Whole Grains, One of the Most Important Food Groups for Preventing Type 2 Diabetes. And this was sent in by a listener for Jack and my opinion and with as you guys have heard me discuss this before when it comes to studies you have to be really really careful um the information gets very very tricky and you don't know necessarily where they're grabbing all the data from this was supposedly a study done over 15 years i believe 55,000 people between the age of 50 and 65 in denmark if i remember i'm reading through here again just to make sure but you know, get my opinion on whether whole grains are the holy grail to type 2 diabetes, and I will say no. But there's always that but, you know. Um, Whole grains aren't necessarily the cure-all for type 2 diabetes, but it depends also where you're getting them from. You don't have cause and effect in this study clearly because you don't know what the people who are eating the higher amount of whole grains per day who had a reduced rate, men and women of type 2 diabetes, what their other foods are. You don't know their exercise habits. You don't know their sleep habits. You don't know whether they smoke, drink. There, Everything was cut out. All I know is these people ate 50 grams. The highest group was 50 grams, which is a small bowl of oatmeal and a slice of bread a day. You know, Um Do I think whole grains can help type 2 diabetes by themselves? No. If you were to sit around and eat nothing but whole grains all day, I would guarantee you would have some serious health problems eventually. So I would take this study with a grain of salt. Again, always look at cause and effect. What else was in there? What other data did we have? We didn't have anything. So are the people who are eating less whole grains, were they, you know, what, 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 if they're drinking a thousand calorie latte a day, there's no grains in that, <laughs> you know, full of sugar, uh, you know, processed chemicals and everything else. And, uh, you know, and there was another statement in here that kind of, kind of brought it home for me. You have to be careful. And it's drinking coffee and avoiding red meat are other factors that can similarly reduce the risk of type two diabetes. Oh, here we go. Red meat's evil again. So I guess all deer, elk, moose, you know, come on, give me a break. Uh, you know, things we've been historically eating as hunter gatherers for millions of years that did not kill us that, you know, come on. Um, and there was no grains. So far as we, we don't have any history that far back. Um, and with, when it comes to, you know, we've talked about this processed grains. This was done in Europe. Grains in Europe are far different than the grains in America. And do we know were these heirloom grains primarily, which are, you know, historically haven't been hybridized many times over modified as, as wheat has been heavily in the U S to include corn, which is a pseudo grain. Won't get into that. Not paleo. Um, Mm -hmm. I hope that helps. It, just be careful. This stuff gets really confusing. Who knows what the slant was? And I'm not saying, hey, the study was slanted. I'm just saying I don't have enough information to to make any determination that whole grains by substituting if you're eating a a processed donut and cookie and you switch over to a whole grain cookie and a whole grain donut Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's not going to help you out much in type 2 diabetes. All right, guys, take care, and remember, com. I wanted to say something
1: here just, just for a second on, on diet in general. Um, there's a, a vegan troll. Remember, we did a vegan uh, sale, the bacon sale this summer when I went on vacation to celebrate the banishing of the vegan troll, Travis, from... Uh, the TSP forums, which I did not do. I did not ban Travis, e- even though he thinks I did. I had nothing to do with it. I was like, "What? Travis is banned?" Or like, "Yeah, we're just tired of him." Um, but he, the guy's not a complete idiot. Like, he's made some reasonable statements, and one of the statements he made was, that the, the, "the the 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 average person on a vegan diet is healthier than the average person in general." I'll agree with that. And the average person that's on a paleo diet is. Healthier than the average person in general, and the average person that is on a carb, uh, a, a caloric restricted diet that's based in whole grains, moderate fat, and you know moderate protein, takes a totally different approach than I do. Is healthier than the average person's diet because all of those entail one thing: paying attention to what the f you're eating. And all diets work, and each diet works differently for other, you know, different people. And some of it's biochemical, and some of it is psychological. Like, I don't want to eat like that. Or if I'm going to give up this, then I don't want to give up that. And what's easier to stay on, what has more of a, a hunger suppression. If I go on a high-carbohydrate, whole-grain-based diet with lots of vegetables, I will literally eat my hand, my left hand. I'll eat it in my sleep because I will be so effing hungry. That is how I respond to that diet. If you don't, that's okay. That's all right. The, the important thing actually is paying attention to what you're eating. Because c- the problem is you say we're going to look at people that eat higher amounts of whole grains. right? So anybody is doing that, anybody is doing that, I don't care what diet they're following, they're following some diet. They're paying attention to something. No one's eating a higher portion of whole grains and shoving ding-dongs and Twinkies down their throat. Okay, so right there, you're going to show a lower incidence of type two diabetes because type two diabetes is primarily caused by what? An overconsumption of sugar and an overconsumption of sugar combined with fat. It's the two together over time that create obesity that leads to the majority, not all, of course, somebody gets ass hurt. The majority of type two diabetic cases. So if the person's focused on, I'm going to be nutritional through whole grains, and as long as they don't think that means eating you know, a bran muffin the size of your face covered in butter, and they're going to kind of go that way with it, and they're going to eat lots of whole grains and fruits and small amounts of meat, etc., they may not be as healthy as they could be on a different diet, but they're going to be healthier than average. Because average means you go down to the state fair and you look at all the friggin' fat people, including the ones that can hide the first two segments of their finger in their elbow because they got so much elbow fat, they don't have they don't have bye bye arms. They you know the, where you wave and it goes bye bye, right? That they're they're way past that. They have they have hide and seek elbow where you can take the and I'm talking about the point, the point of your elbow. You make you put your arm up and you can stick your finger into the point. If you stick your finger in the point of your elbow. Unless you're a complete lardo, there's nowhere for it to go. You touch bone. When you can stick your your finger into your elbow, you're going to have type 2 diabetes. It doesn't matter that, you know, well, I eat mostly this or that. You eat everything. That's your problem. And I think that's one of the problems with all these studies. These studies do not compare, let's say, a vegan diet to a paleo diet. They say we're comparing a vegan diet to people that eat meat. Well, that includes people that are eating freaking chicken fried steak on a stick dipped in gravy. That is, so that's not a that's not an apples to apples or an apples to bacon comparison. Just wanted to throw that out there. Anyway, next I have a question for Nick Ferguson on gardening. If you got a black thumb,
0: hey there TSB listeners, Nick Ferguson here, back from a two week install job in Texas, putting in ponds and swales for a client. And straight off the bat, I'm going to apologize for my voice and lack of mental clarity, because today is the first day in almost a week that I've been out of the bed more than I've been in a bed due to some kind of man flu, or so my wife says. So point is, I think I sound awful, but I'm here for you guys anyways. (laughs) So let me get straight into my question for the week. And Jen asks, what would you suggest for a foolproof perennial food garden that even a A black thumb gardener couldn't kill. My mother loves gardens, especially the idea of harvesting food from them. However, she has the blackest thumb I've ever seen in my life. I know some people like that. Every time she attempts to care for a plant, she kills it, guaranteed. She could kill a dandelion growing in a compost pile. That's pretty extreme. Although, for some reason, I can't get dandelions to grow either. So, I don't know. She wants my help growing food... But I live pretty far away. Since I can't do it for her, I need to help her setting up something she can't kill. Since the only plants she doesn't kill are the ones she never touches, I want to set her up with a hardy perennial garden that will be mostly hands-off. What plants would be both high-yield, low-maintenance, and indestructible? Do you have any tips on how to plant them so they would establish on their own without help? She lives in New Hampshire, a wet zone 5B, though I would love to hear your opinions on other zones of climates too. Thanks, Jen. Whoo, <clears throat> Lord. All right. Well, I'm going to answer this to the best of my abilities, and then I'm going to give you my thoughts on the matter. And hopefully between those two, you can glean something useful to apply to your situation because Um I do not have a good answer for you. Um I don't know of anything that's going to be High-yield, low-maintenance, indestructible, that will establish on its own without any help. Um, so to start with, there's nothing foolproof. But for hardy perennial production, I think herbs and flowers are relatively low-maintenance and useful. So I, I think it's important to address our strengths and weaknesses. If your mom is just not good at stuff like that, maybe she'd be better at something that is less hands-on, that she could trade with someone who can do more hands-on plant growing. So a lot of perennials, perennial flowers are beautiful, and people will pay a lot for a bouquet. So that might be something that she might look into. She might trade cut flowers for a little basket of vegetables from someone who grows lots of vegetables. So, that's just something to kind of consider. So, for someone with a black thumb, I'd look for plants and vegetables that will volunteer in your climate. Uh, Jerusalem artichokes are one thing that she could grow that most people find hard to kill. Um, comfrey, mints, those are both relatively hard to destroy. So, I would try to think along those lines. <clears throat> While I know a bit about plants, it's difficult to come up with a list of foolproof plants because, in my experience, man, I can kill them all. Even things that lots of people claim are Terminator plants, like Gumphrey and mint, I don't have any problem killing them. I, I'm pretty good at it. Uh, <laughs> so what I'd like to do is address your core issue, as it seems to me, and that's the black thumb problem. And most people who think they have a black thumb really don't. They just get distracted with other more important things than the stupid plants outside. They have more important things to do daily, and as a result, they're very sporadic and checking on their little sessile friends who are relying on them for all their needs. So <clears throat> the friends to the Black Thumb Gardener are first and foremost a schedule to diligently check on and inspect plants for damage, moisture, disease, and insects. That's got to be every single day. You can't go a week without checking on them because it'll be too late to intervene. Second would be eliminating the most common problems (coughs) that novice gardeners face. Biting off more than they can chew, having poor soils, and improper watering, be it too much or too little. So here's a strategy that I think is a winning strategy. Build a single four foot wide by four foot wide by maybe like two foot tall raised wicking bed or something similar in size with like a feed tub or an IBC tote or any container that you can set up to do the job. They don't have to be complicated. You can make them beautiful. You can clad it in nice cedar or redwood or whatever on the outside. And you can plumb it all real complicated and beautiful, or it can be all one container with a hole drilled in the side to overflow at whatever height it needs to overflow. And a standpipe and a false bottom so that you can fill it in from this side. You don't have to get complicated, and it's kind of a little bit more complicated than I have time to go into detail over just audio here. It'll be really hard for me to paint a picture for you, but I bet Jack has a couple videos up showing how to build one. I know we filmed one with me involved in the construction on one of the the workshops, so it's probably in the m s b members area. I'm not sure, but if you're not an m s b member that would probably pay for itself right there just in learning how to set up a good wicking bed. Fill that wicking bed with a good growing medium. So whatever you're using for the top half of it, I do something like a 50-50 mix of a good compost and a quality soilless potting mix. Something like ProMix BX or some other comparable product. You can just use something like a miracle Grow potting soil. Um, those are soilless. There's no actual dirt in it. It's normally mostly peat moss. And then you could even go so far as to install a float valve to automatically top off the water level in the waking bed so it's literally a set-and-forget piece of technology. It'll take care of itself. And that way she doesn't have to worry about half of the bad bugs and diseases that are soil-borne, <clears throat> no issues with overwatering and underwatering, And fertility issues are almost non-existent using good compost and potting mix. And I bet if you did that and used some good vigorous hybrid vegetables, not heirlooms, with excellent disease resistance, I bet your mom's black thumb would turn a more greenish-brown tint. Another little tip would be to check with your local ag extension agency to see if there's a Master Gardener's class that she could take and learn some of the basics. Uh, I do not endorse all of the Master gardener. Um, methods and techniques and mindset but they do teach a lot of good basic know-how and they'll also know what diseases you're most likely to run into and should have resistant cultivars to suggest to give her a bit of an edge on her gardening <clears throat> so to recap on that start her out small with only about 16 square feet of growing space don't go big Use quality compost and potting mix for the root zone of the plants. Make that growing space come up to at least knee height to eliminate bending over because, you know, let's face it, if it's a pain in the lower back to tend to the plants, they're not going to be a high priority. I'd use hybrid plants because they're going to have more vigor and disease resistance than heirlooms and definitely join a gardening club or organization locally for support and camaraderie. I know that wasn't the list of bulletproof plants that you were hoping for, but honestly, they just don't exist in my book. Addressing the core issue of a black thumb will do way more to help someone to be successful than a mythological, high-yield, low-maintenance, indestructible, yummy vegetable. Like I tell my clients, you can have two of three things. You can have it fast and high quality, but you can't have it cheap. Or you can have it fast and cheap, but it won't be high quality. Something has to give. Most of those plants that would fall into your indestructible, low-maintenance vegetable category would be low-yield and not very tasty, or they would need extra expertise in preparing them so they're not toxic. So you get out what you put in. So I'd help her put in some shortcuts to success. Don't be afraid of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides if it helps her get through the first year or two of gardening before you go organic. And then put in some years growing organic before you get into the beyond organic methods and techniques. So I hope that helps both you and lots of the listeners out there who are following TSP. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. You can find out more about me and what I do over there. And for those interested in hiring me to do some consulting, it looks like you're too late for this year because I'm all booked up. So you can get on my waiting list by emailing me, nick at HomegrownLiberty.com. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Do good things.
1: So great stuff from Nick. And I have some somewhat sad news, I guess. It's not really sad because it's a good thing for Nick. Nick has officially tendered his at least temporary res- uh, resignation to the expert counsel. And, and the reason he's doing that, he's taking a job, a pretty exciting opportunity of a job that's going to have him on the road traveling and working about 60 to 70 hours a week uh, for the next few months. So this is going to allow him to get completely out of debt and advance his career and what have you. And it's not really related to like permaculture stuff. It's more of an industrial thing, and it's a good thing. And I won't say anything more about it than that, uh, because I don't know how much he wants to to, to put out there publicly, okay, as, as to what he's doing or whatever, and I respect people's privacy. But he's not going away mad. He's just going away. He's not even really going away. He's going to be at my house tonight. We're going to be hanging out, probably talking aquarium nerd stuff and things like that. Uh, but he's got an opportunity that's really going to benefit his family. And I'm very happy for that. I'm unhappy because we won't have him serving on the expert count because he's like, I just don't, I just don't think I can do a good job, uh, while this is going on. And I, I totally understand that. I guess the good news is when we have people like Jeff Lawton and Ben Falk and myself, we're pretty beefed up in the world of things like permaculture, and what have you, though none of us have quite Nick's take on it, which I really thought rounded things out well. But uh, let's wish Nick well on this next chapter of his life, and I'm sure we'll be hearing from him from time to time. Um, but he does have some hard-charging stuff ahead of him, and uh, I'm proud of him for taking the opportunity to improve his life and his family's life. and. Nick is not just an expert council member. Nick is not just a member of this community. Nick is a close personal friend. Honestly, I think we would hang out like weekly if he was closer. We're just like three and a half hours apart and that makes things difficult. So uh, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like a, a, a sad thing but a happy thing at the same time because I'm happy for my friend. Uh, next up, we have a question on storage of batteries, specifically like bigger, heavier-duty batteries, like for battery backup systems. Uh, and uh, Steve Harris is dealing with some health things right now, and plus he's been really busy with CAC. So I kick this one over to Sean Mills. Sean, take it away.
3: Hey, everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and today I've got a question about battery storage location from Mark in Tennessee. Uh, Mark says, I'm in the process of finalizing the design for my solar system. We will be taking the entire house off-grid with the exception of our AC unit and our shop. The house is a 1,600-square-foot ranch built in the 60s. There is no garage or any space that is conditioned where I can isolate the batteries from the living space. I do have a generous crawl space where I can mount an enclosure to set the batteries. We are finishing the installation of an outdoors wood-burning water heater, so I can run hot water to the enclosure to provide heat. I've measured the temperature of the crawl space several times this summer, and it averages about 72 degrees in the afternoon of the hottest days. My other option seems to be uh, building a small storage shed on the back of the house. Heating it is not an issue, but cooling it would be. The batteries would most likely be nickel iron. Thanks for any advice, Mark. Well, hey, Mark, thanks for sending the question in. Uh, first, so everyone else gets up to speed, let's talk about what a nickel iron battery is. Uh, Nickel-iron are rechargeable batteries that have a nickel oxide hydroxide positive plate and iron negative plates with an electrolyte of potassium hydroxide. Uh, the active materials are held in nickel-plated steel tubes or perforated pockets. It's a very robust battery which is tolerant of abuse, uh, and abuse can be overcharged, over-discharge, short-circuiting, uh, and can have a very long life if it's treated, even if it's treated bad. Uh, it's often used in backup situations where it can be continuously charged and can last for more than 20 years. Due to its low specific energy, poor charge retention, retention and high cost of manufacture, other types of rechargeable batteries have displaced the nickel-iron battery in most applications. Uh, some places where you'll still find nickel-iron batteries are in mining operations or in warehouses where they've got really big loads uh, but can't necessarily use uh, LP or diesel forklifts. Now, I reached out to Iron Edison, which is, you know, the main uh, people that you can get uh, nickel iron batteries from in the U.S., and they claim that the normal temperature range that you would see in Tennessee will have no impact on the battery capacity. These batteries do come with a 10-year warranty, uh, and they also say that their batteries will last 11,000 cycles, which is about 30 years of daily cycling, so... You know, that being said, uh, if you're gonna warranty something for 10 years, uh, and claim that it's good for 30, you know, I, I see maybe there's a problem there, but, uh, but anyways, there's no other rechargeable battery, uh, that you can use in an off-grid application that's gonna come with a 10-year warranty. Now, one thing to think about with Iron Edison batteries is that their charging efficiency is only about 60%. Uh, so you need a bigger uh, PV array in order to charge the system. You know, you need a, almost a 50% bigger array uh, to get the same type of charging uh, capacity. Um, additionally, even a 100-amp-hour, 48-volt single battery is going to weigh you 560 pounds. So that's a lot of uh, the logistics of getting a 560-pound battery into your um, crawl space uh, might create an issue. And they're pretty big, too. Uh, also, these batteries off gas like crazy. I've heard people that have these things talk about it it sounds like a waterfall uh, getting close to these things uh, when they're really getting charged hard. So, um, you know, moving that hydrogen away from the bank is going to be absolutely necessary. So that's something you're going to have to take into account if you're going with the uh, nickel iron batteries. Uh, and also on nickel iron, each cell is 1.2 volts uh, compared to two volts for lead acid batteries. So with some compo to get some components to work with the system, you need to get a 38 cell system for a 48 volt uh, versus the standard 40 cell, which is what you can buy online. So um, I'm going to base my cost analysis on the standard 40 cell. The 38 cell might actually cost more, but I don't have that information handy right now. I can tell you that a common discussion among off-grid enthusiasts is that uh, nickel-iron batteries are for those that don't do their homework and have plenty of cash to spend. Speaking of cash, that 100-amp-hour, 48-volt battery is going to cost you $4,225 at Iron Edison, and... Uh, it's going to cost you about $600 uh, to ship that from uh, Colorado over to uh, Tennessee. So you're really looking at a pre-tax cost of $4,825. Now, for comparison, Trojan T105 batteries, which is where I tell everyone to go uh, if they can for off-grid systems, weigh about 62 pounds each, and you can find them locally. In Tennessee, there's many places that you can find Trojan T105s. Uh, Eight Trojans in wired in series for 48 volts will give you 225 amp hours. We're going to derate that to 112 uh, because we never want to go past 50% depth of discharge. And so those eight batteries are going to cost you around 1200 bucks. At 50% depth of discharge, you're going to get 2,000 cycles or about five and a half years. You can get more. We're over six years on ours. Uh, but even at five and a half years, you're talking about 22 years before the nickel, iron batteries are equal in cost, not considering the additional solar that you need. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, you really should look at those lead leaded uh, acid batteries that are flooded. Uh, they're the most cost-effective way to go. But talking about your storage situation, uh, they do lose about 10% of their capacity for every 15 to 20 degrees below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, what happens is the internal chemistry slow down, resistance increases, and the capacity and charge acceptance drop. Uh, now, this reduced capacity is temporary. It only happens while the battery is cold. And you can marry a battery temp sensor to the charge controller, which will help you mitigate the charge acceptance drop. That's what we have on our system. And it, what it does is it varies the input voltage based on the temperature of the bat- battery. So uh, putting these in your crawl space, I can tell you you're pretty close to where I am. My crawl space typically stays in the 40 to 50 degree range throughout the winter. So even if we use that 40 degree number, uh, you know we can assume a 20 to 25 percent reduction in capacity. So to put that in real numbers, let's say you've got a 900 amp hour battery bank. Um, that battery bank is really only going to be worth about 700 amp hours uh, at 40 degrees. Um, since you're going to set your de- depth of discharge to 50%, that means you have a usable 350 amp hours of storage in that battery bank at 48 volts. Now, we know that watts are equal to amps times volts, so if we multiply the 350 by 48, and we carry the hours from amp hours over into kilowatt hours, that tells us that that battery bank uh, is going to give us about 16.8 kilowatt hours of storage. So if we divide that number by our planned number of days of autonomy, or how long we want to go without sun or without having to turn the generator on to top these batteries off, we see what our daily battery budget is going to be. So in that scenario, 16.8 kilowatt hours divided by three days, would be 5.6 kilowatt hours per day. Now, that doesn't account for charging that we're going to get even on the cloudiest days. I can tell you that our system delivers between 10 and 20% of our nameplate capacity, even on the darkest and rainiest days. So, um, long story short, Mark, if you want to store these in your crawl space, that's not going to be a problem. Uh, the logistics for getting a nickel-iron battery in there could create some issues for you. Um, with everything taken into consideration, I really think you should go with the flooded lead acid. Even if you took the thirty six hundred dollars in savings and and bought some dividend paying stocks uh and, and replaced those battery banks after, you know, pulled twelve hundred bucks out every five years uh to fix those battery banks. Even after twenty years, you're still gonna be about four hundred, five hundred dollars ahead of the game. Uh and like I said, you can get more than five years out of those systems. So putting it in your in our climate putting it in your um cross space isn't a problem if you do decide to go with the nickel iron you've got to make sure that you are going to um off get you know take care of that off gas and get that hydrogen out from underneath your house uh, that's it's a it's a lot it's a lot more than a flooded uh, lead acid battery and um yeah, so essentially you can put it in there, not a problem. Uh, you, there are some things to take advantage of. If you've got that water that you can run some, some warm water around that battery area, uh, that's going to reduce the amount of uh, loss that you're going to see from the temperature being low. And, uh, and I think that you've got a good start to that system. We've, we've emailed back and forth a few times and, uh, really wish you luck in getting that in. But, uh, in my opinion, I'd stay away from those nickel iron batteries. Well hey with that being said, uh thanks for the question. If you've got any more, send them to Jack at TSPC Expert or you can email me at Sean ShawN at hackmysolar com.
1: And I do have the information spec sheets that Sean mentioned linked in the show notes for you guys today if you want to know more. Next, we have a, a, a question, not only really a question, kind of a follow-up. Um, I took a question last week on medicinal, or the week before, on medicinal needs. And uh, Michael Jordan, who listens to the show all the time, I heard that and wanted to give his take on medicinal need. And with that, Michael, what do you got to
4: say, man? Dun-dun-dun. Hey, this is your pocket beekeeping buddy, Michael Jordan, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. So a few weeks back, Michelle asked Jack about opening a meadery for medicinal and medical meads. Michelle has stated that her husband and her have been making meads, and uh, the route of growth in the area of wines and meaderies is bigger and growing for tourism and local business. They would like to fit the demand by making a medicinal mead or methylogen so you can, so you can, uh, so they can have a business. Um here, so you decided to start a meadery. Congratulations on taking a blunt. Um, you're about to embark on an incredible adventure, one that'll be both challenging and yet incredibly rewarding and not to mention delicious. Um, so just some things I want you to think about as you do on this and things that I have learned about this whole thing. Uh, do you have an EIN number, employee identification number? Applying for an EIN, though, the IRS should be one of the first things you pursue as a business owner. As an EIN is used for your tax purposes, federal winery, meadery permit applications through the TTB. Uh, they all ask for your EIN, banks, uh, everything. Um, how will your business be organized is the sole proprietorship partnership corporation LLC each has a benefit and drawback Uh, you'll need to register your business name with the state government if you choose a business name that's other than your own personal name you'll need to complete a doing a business as registration Um, you'll need to write articles of incorporation of how the business is organized and they need to be accurate and up to date at the time Um, do you need a bond a bond is the legal guarantee of federal excise tax to be paid for mead production or stored at a specific location. Uh, you need to complete all the, you need to fill out a TTB winery permit application requires uh, you to produce mead. You need to complete your state alcohol beverage license application. Uh, you might need formula approvals. Some wines are required to have formulas approved by the TTB. If you're production of any table wines or anything that's 7 to 14% or higher. Um, label approval. Do um, You need to find the labels, what you're going to call them. Anything that's above 7% in volume, the federal government needs registration for it. And, uh, man, do you have uh, an FDA facility that's food facility regulated and recognized by the government i mean uh there's a lot of things i mean all domestic meetings located in the u.s are required to have all this stuff done as per the bioterrorism act of 20 of 2002 i believe is what it is so i mean those i mean those are a lot of things to think about if you're going to start a meeting i mean that uh, get your business information down uh for more information uh, we can help you at abfriendlycompany.com. Just email us and we can kind of get you going. Or you can get a hold of Hops and Vine Consultants. Uh, their number is 844-460-8246. Um, the only reason I'm telling you about them is they helped us. So those are things that you need to get going and thinking about. Now, as I read more about uh, methylogens, it all started sounding like a huge pain in the ass. Uh, the books that went on about I'm supposed to check pH levels, uh, hydrometers, hydrogenize, and some shit like that. But it sounds like a bunch of bullshit work to me, and I didn't sign up for that. I was looking for something to to drink. I wasn't wanting to sit down and watch six months worth of thing taking temperature readings, cold, cooling it, crashing it, rerouting it. I mean, I want to drink a healthy, made drink from the sweet love of the gods. I think you should do it. Hell yes, uh, you should. With the legalization of cannabis in California, you should do well. I'm the only one right now that's registered to make cannabis meads, but I'm sure more will be coming out. But as Jack stated, a methogen is a mead with a bunch of herbs in it because, you know, herbs are good for you. And with everything I'm reading and using and testing and having others try it, uh, medicated meads are great. Now, Jack said it does not cure body wounds or reset bones. I would not say anything like that. Uh, wording is everything. I would say that this fine mead is a blend of hops, chamomile, and has been known to make you sleep better at night uh, and help you digest your food. Uh, we hope this fine mead finds you after a meal and helps you digest and sleep well. Or, uh, uh let's see... Um, this uh nice mead is with ginseng and ginkgo. We hope it'll find you in a good mindset. Uh or this tasty treat is given for fall season, warm to help activate the herbs. Uh we hope it finds you energy to fight off colds and flus during this year. Now, I'm not claiming that they cure colds, but as Airborne says it helps prevent colds and flu. Um make some test them out have others try them tell you what they what they think and go from there that you're not making any medical claims you're just uh producing a little bit of hype on uh herbalistics and the homeopath uh parts that people that are in that will notice that and see a great product where alcohol does thin your blood that them herbs and spices are distilled now and getting right into your system and helping you i mean uh (laughs) I had Vicky Rowe of GotMead.com tell me that my medicinal mead helped her so much at the American Mead Makers Association in 2018. Um, she told me that she suffers from chronic back pain and would testify after drinking CBD mead that she was able to host the American Mead Makers event without any pain medication that day. So, you know, that's a plus for me to have somebody that drinks mead on a regular basis and can see the difference between uh, the buzz and the medical effects of the medicinal parts. So, you know, uh you know, I, I I'm working with another guy that's that's using this medical mead with Parkinson's disease and he's having great results. So I don't claim any kind of cure. So don't claim that you have a cure. But you have an alternative that is safe as well as recreational. Hey I'm Michael Jordan to tell you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage company because we all have to start someplace. Hey, and help your fellow man, because one day you guys are going to need help too. Hey, I hope to see you guys at Jack's uh, 10-year reunion. I'll be bringing meats for you to try. Uh, come and have a good time and try some meats.
1: Next up, I have a segment from Nicole Sauce on um, developing effective messaging for your company, your brand, etc. Nicole, take it away.
5: Howdy, TSP. This is Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee taking a question from Chris. Chris asks, how do you develop messaging? And I think he meant how do you efficiently develop messaging because here's the background. I have launched an online business and content on my website does not quite fit what I want to accomplish. As things have been rolled out, it has taken quite a bit of time to develop our core brand and choose a call to action that makes sense. At the moment, I think we have something that's pretty good, but I still wonder if it's the right message for my business. How can I make sure I have the right message? Is there a way to get this done more quickly? Thanks, Chris. Well, Chris, thanks for the question. You are asking way more than you think you're asking. And I am glad that you are thinking about this earlier rather than later. Your core marketing message is the way you explained your brand story to those you wish to reach so that you can achieve your business goals. It's both that simple and that complex, it's one sentence that can take people years sometimes to get through. And I can tell you what I do. I can't tell you like the best way ever. I can just tell you what I do and what I've been doing my, my whole career. Before I launch into message development, I spend time focusing on a blueprint for new business. I say blueprint because I see an initial business plan as more of a guide than an instruction manual. So knowing basic information like, oh, I don't know, how much you would like to grow in the next few years, what your finances will look like at different scales, what you need to target, who you need to target, and so forth, can help you develop a stronger message out of the gate. That said, I have to also admit, that fully 40%, maybe more of the businesses I have started, began with an idea and the plan to test the waters for feedback. The the Living Free in Tennessee podcast, for example, was initially a creative outlet for me to be able to use to give back to the universe while holding myself accountable through a personal transition. It was not a podcast that that was intended to be motivational for so many others, but that is what it has grown into. And so I didn't really know my core message beyond what I was doing for myself out of the gate until I discovered, you know, who, who the audience was and, and saw how they were responding. And then I circled back and refined some things. And I mean, hollow roast coffee, another good example. This was once just a booth at a farmer's market that I set up because someone said they liked the coffee I was roasting at home. So I decided to see what how other locals would respond. And from that, I learned a lot. So come to think of it, I've almost always done a proof of concept step in businesses I've started on a small scale to test my assumptions before launching something big. And this is not as precise as a formal marketing, as market testing that you can do, but it, it can really inform you about if your idea is good without leading you to spending thousands of dollars on launching something that just kind of flops, right? So, anyway, once I have a blueprint, it makes it easier to ex- to explore the four questions I like to look at very carefully as I'm developing a message. The first one is why does your product matter? The second one is who's your t- t- your target customer? The third one is who's your competition? And the fourth one is what is your unique value proposition? So as I'm looking at, you know, why does my product matter? The, some of the things I'll ask myself are like, Hey, what problem is my product solving for somebody else? Or to, to hone down in on target customer, uh, who has this problem that my business or product can solve? Uh, the third one, your competition, like who or what stands in the way of me solving the problem for that target customer. And sometimes, that may be not a who like competitor to holler roast other roaster sort of thing. It it may just be uh gosh a government program that exists in your local area that doesn't exist anywhere else, and it's just the habit that people use that right. And then you know your, your unique value proposition sounds like a buzz buzzword right, but you know what you're really looking at here is how do you solve that problem better than other options out there right. Because the, when you figure out what that is, and if that thing is interesting to the person you're solving the problem for, and you can credibly solve their problem, you've got an idea of what will motivate them to buy or to interact with you or whatever your your need is for them to do. So do notice that I did not ask what your product or service is or how it works. This, this thing, what your product or service does matters to your customer, but an exhaustive explanation of it and the ins and outs of how it works and that dilutes your message. And this is something I see most people do wrong in messaging is they talk all about them and don't give a rip about what motivates the people who they're trying to help. I mean, okay. So like when I get on a plane, I just want to know that it safely flies me from one place to another and I don't really need to know the ins and outs of the cockpit controls, right? But the captain of the plane is going to be quite interested in what's in the cockpit and if the pilot is buying the plane that matters. If I'm only buying the flight who cares? So you don't talk about cockpit controls to me the person using the plane you talk about how it's, you know, gonna get me there efficiently and safely and all of the, and, and, you know, comfortable seats would be nice, although those days are way behind us, aren't they? So deciding who your target customer is and what they care about is one of the most important pieces of how you explain why your product or service or business or podcast or magazine, why that is the thing they want to buy. And the message to sell to a pilot and the message to sell to a passenger is going to be very, very different. So I do encourage people to to figure out your target customer. And if your answer is it's everybody, I probably will shoot you with an airsoft gun. Cause that's the wrong answer. Anyway, a good brand message will make it apparent to your target customer, how your product or service or business helps them in some way with a problem or meets a need or desire as to how to speed this up. The process of developing this up, going through the process and running it through a market research firm, or just running it by people who are in your target market, which is how I, I, don't usually pay for market research unless it's a big product launch. Um, And then refining, that just takes time. And I find it's harder to do with your own product or service than for somebody else. And I think that's because we become really close to exactly how we roast the coffee, right? (laughs) So you will need to learn to separate your why, like why you do it, from the why you are explaining to your customer to get them to respond to you. And as much as I hate to say it, if you launch something... And find out that no one 's care, no one cares. you may have to make adjustments, so you may come up with a message and find out you have to change it, right, but there is another really important factor in marketing messaging and selling what you do, and a great message really helps your idea grow. but if you are passionate and dedicated and willing to do what it takes to build your client base, that comes through in everything you do, and that's almost more important. Because even with an imperfect message, that passion can make you successful. Which brings me to my last point, which is developing the perfect message is one of the things I see people use as an excuse. They use it as an excuse not to start. You know, investing time, money, and effort on messaging before a launch isn't invaluable when done right. But. You also need to be careful of analysis paralysis, getting in the way of you getting your stuff done. And sometimes you just need to be getting your microgreens out there in restaurants, right? Like something John Dowie will talk about at the fall workshop. I I had to stop overthink from getting in the way of interviewing with Jack as I launched my coffee Kickstarter. This is something I did three months before I finalized Holler Roast's tagline, right? But I had enough to be able to start. And really, I think cultivating the ability to see things through the eyes of others, that's going to be your most important thing to developing your brand story over time. Because as you interact with customers, you'll start seeing what they see in what you do. And what they see in what you do is something to listen very carefully to because that helps you explain to others what they will see in what you do and why it matters to them. And there are tons of tools you can tap into to inform you on how your brand is portrayed. But at the end of the day, even with the best brand story in the whole wide world, if you are not committed to making your business successful, it's going to fail. And, you know, it might even fail even if you do everything right. So, I mean, that's the nature of a startup. So just remember, it's better to have an imperfect message to work with and refine as you go than waiting to start walking until you have everything perfect because you're going to walk before you run. What you don't know yet can't guide you. And so the sooner you really get started on your journey, the sooner you'll learn the lessons you need to learn to have a stronger brand story. Anyway, wow, that went somewhere new. Um, Chris, thank you for your question. I hope you have a great time with your new endeavor And speaking of refining things as you go, I have some news. Holler Roast Coffee has launched a Coffee of the Month Club serving 12 coffees from 12 countries over the next year. They will be automatically and conveniently delivered to your door with tasting notes and information on each variety. Just head on over to HollerRoast.com and click on the Coffee of the Month Club But don't forget something very important if you do that. You have an MSB discount code there because Jack makes it easy to give back to y'all. Jack's awesome, and so he has put together that program, Use It. So join the MSB, grab your Coffee of the Month on HollerRoast.com, and don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Make it a great week.
1: Next up, I have a question about vaccinations for your pets for Dr. Kelly. Dr. Kelly, take it away.
6: Hi, Jack, and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly, here to answer your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Andrew in New York. Is there a way to vaccinate dogs and cats at home to save on vet bills? Also, am I getting ripped off? Details. I just got home from a $604 annual checkup for my 12-year-old cat. Most of the cost was for vaccinations. I did a little digging around, and it seems you could order the vaccines online. However, they only seem to come in large quantities, i.e. 50. The price for 50 vaccines seems to be almost even for the price of a single vaccine the vet administers. Is there a feline vaccine kit that anyone sells that comes with single vaccines? For reference, I broke down my vet's invoice below. Lastly, do some vets tend to push vaccines or tests that aren't needed that I should look out for? Thanks sincerely, Andrew. Okay, this question has taken me a while to answer because it's difficult to condense the multiple aspects of this question. Now, the first question in it uh, is really, can you vaccinate your cat at home? And technically, yes, for certain vaccines and with some caveats. Some places online will sell individual vaccines, um, but I'll also touch on the online market at the end of this. There's a whole range of factors that go into the decision-making process of which vaccines and tests your pet needs. In order to better make sense of this, I'm going to give some background on feline vaccinations and feline healthcare in general to give you a sense of the thought process veterinarians are going through when they make recommendations for your pet. Now, the American Association of Feline Practitioners, AAFP, has come up with a recommended vaccine protocol for cats. This includes core vaccines that they recommend all cats have and non-core vaccines that are given based on lifestyle and location. Similar guidelines for dogs have been established by the American Animal Hospital Association. Now, the core vaccines for cats are FVRCP, which is the feline viral rhinotracheitis, Khaleesi, and Panleukopenia. You can kind of think of it as the feline upper respiratory vaccine. And this one is given during the kitten series, boosted a year later, and then goes to an every three-year protocol. And it Core vaccines also include rabies, which is given as a kitten and boosted a year later, then given yearly or every three years, depending on the type of vaccine used and local and state regulations. Often rabies is required to be given by a veterinarian or possibly under the supervision of a veterinarian. Therefore, if your state requires a vet to give it and your cat bites someone accidentally and you say, well, I gave it at home, he actually does have a vaccine, they will not care. And it's considered unvaccinated to them, which could result in quarantines at an animal control facility, possibly lasting even up to six months. It's a bad deal. Um, and so the reasoning behind this is that this vaccine is really not for the animals. I mean, none of us want our pets to get rabies, obviously. And so it's good for them. But it's a vaccine that's really given for human public health. Um, it's also a vaccine that is important for cats that it be what's called a non-adjuvanted vaccine. Now, adjuvants are added to vaccines to help them last longer. And in dogs, it doesn't appear to cause a problem. However, in cats, adjuvants have been implicated as a potential cause of feline vaccine-associated sarcoma, which is a tumor related to vaccination. Now, this is fortunately very rare, um, but it's definitely something we want to avoid if possible. And the FVRCP vaccines, um, most of those are non-adjuvanted as they are modified live vaccines. You know, depending on if there's something else mixed in there, then you might have one that wasn't a modified live that you need to check for. But um, rabies and feline leukemia can have adjuvants depending on the type and brand. And the only non-adjuvanted ones on the market are made by Boehringer or Ingelheim, who used to be Marielle. Now, non-core vaccines. There's several... Of these and I've listed out some of the main ones you may hear about. Um, feline leukemia is a non-core vaccine and it's given to kittens who are the most susceptible to feline leukemia and then continued if a cat is an outdoor or an indoor outdoor cat with exposure to other cats from the neighborhood. If it's con- given booster yearly as long as the cat's in a high-risk population. Bordetella, which is kennel cough, you often think of that more as a dog thing, it's rarely given to cats unless they have known exposures such as breeding cats in a cattery or a similar situation where they've already had a diagnosed confirmation that Bordetella was going around. It's usually not too big of a deal. And really, even in households that have dogs that get kennel cough, it's rarely going to the cats. It's just most time it doesn't happen. And then there's also FIV, which is feline immunodeficiency virus, and it's a vaccine that is used rarely as well. Um, It's used rarely for multiple reasons. The first, that the clades used in its development are not the types most commonly found in the U.S., but rather seen more often in Japan. And it may also not be as effective for the same reason there isn't a good HIV vaccine, as this virus mutates frequently. And this vaccine will also make a cat test positive on a test for FIV. So it becomes impossible to then tell if the cat had the vaccine or the acquired virus. And so that can get just become a real mess in and of itself. Um, FIP vaccine feline infectious peritonitis is not likely to be effective. And I haven't heard or seen of anyone giving or recommending that in a really long time. So it's not likely to be too much of an issue for you. Um, But if someone was saying to get that, I would say no. Um, So if you were going to give a vaccine, it's most likely the FVRCP one. um, And you want to note that if it's a vaccine you mix, you want to administer it within half an hour of mixing it together. Um, and they are often refrigerated, so it needs to be refrigerated from the time it's bought until it's mixed. You don't want to pull it up, mix it all, then go to look for the cat, end up chasing the cat, because they don't want to come, the cat runs under the bed, where you futile, futilely try to sweep it out with the broom for two hours, just aggravating your cat, making you mad, and now your vaccine's not usable. So I would wait until you actually have the cat. Um, when you start talking costs and veterinary care you will likely get many different opinions and answers. And there are different philosophies on how to set up charges in a veterinary hospital. And you get some places where they um, may charge a discounted or no exam fee, but charge for vaccines. Um, Or it could be set up like it is where I practice, where there's an exam fee. Um, But if for owners that are running blood work at the same time, there's a discount on the vaccinations. There's There's all sorts of different ways to do it. Um, and as far as vaccine costs in general, most vaccines are priced similarly to each other, although certain ones such as the non-adjuvanted feline vaccines and the bivalent flu vaccines for dogs are some of the higher priced vaccines for vets to acquire. So you, it would be reasonable to expect that those may have a slightly higher, um, charge on them just depending on what they're using. So as a vet, while I think vaccination is important for your pet, um, Really, the most important part of taking your pet to the veterinarian is the exam and the opportunity to discuss any problems your cat may be having, such as behavior issues, arthritis, or litter box habits, just anything that we can help you with and help make your cat more comfortable. Chances are you're going to have to take your cat in for at least the rabies vaccine anyway. Um, it's important to remember that the price markups on vaccines, medications, and other services are not just Marked up to quote, make a profit. I mean, obviously any business has to make money and make a profit in order to exist. Um, but before you can make a profit, you've got to cover the bills, which includes payroll for the vets and staff. The technicians that are helping the doc with the vaccines are usually the ones that are also helping run anesthesia. So you want intelligent, well paid ones. Um, you've got to pay for electricity, loans on the practice, all these different things. And, um, now the amount of markup needed is going to depend on multiple factors and, To be perfectly frank, these are factors that are currently in a shift in the veterinary profession. Um, This is kind of like a background insight into the profession. And it's really, you know, one of the things, it's really good that we've shown that animals don't need yearly vaccination for every single vaccine. Um, That's awesome. And it's doing what's best for the pets. Um, But that was also an area that did help to support clinic income, you know, in like, 15, 20 years ago when all of this started coming out, and they've had to make shifts. And the other thing is online pharmacies and pharmacies such as Walmart carrying veterinary medications, you know, that's a whole nother conundrum. Some online pharmacies are reselling medications that were illegally resold to them, and many manufacturers won't uphold guarantees if they're purchased online instead of at a veterinarian, depending on the product. Even products such as over-the-counter flea medications that appear to be named brand at major stores have been found to be counterfeit. You know, presumably the store didn't know, but it was still bought through a different channel, and so it wasn't real. Now, there's also the downside that many human pharmacists have a limited knowledge of veterinary medications or even how human meds are used for animals in different doses and things like that. So there are real trade-offs. I mean, as it can sometimes be cheaper to acquire medications this way, um, but it does come without veterinary recommendations with it. Now, everyone's got different opinions on that, um, but it's the fact is it's not a situation that'll be changing. It's just that's what it is. And um, the shift with vaccines really happened, like I said, at least 15 years ago, um, and. Most places have adjusted to that at this point. Um, but the shift of the medications is an ongoing one and it's just how things work and the veterinary prices in the industry will likely rise in other areas in the clinic to help compensate for this loss. Um, now bear in mind the experience should also reflect a cost increase though. And your experience in a well equipped standalone practice, you know, especially one if they're feline focused and everything should be very different than say like a vaccine shot clinic in the parking lot. You know, those are, you would expect to have, if you're paying more, you'd expect it to be a better experience. Now, another factor, important factor uh, as well is the practice location. You know, the cost of living is higher in New York than Texas, so your veterinary costs will often reflect that as well. Um, As far as tests that should be recommended, the edict I always think about before recommending a test is what is it going to change? Um, now this is whether it's a heartworm test or a CT scan, it doesn't matter. You know, based on the results, you know, think different things can be a diet change. It could indicate the need for further testing. Um, it could point to the need for supplementation or sometimes it just gives the owner peace of mind. And sometimes that's enough of a reason to run the test. And I think it's great that you had senior blood work run as there are many diseases that can start to pop up in older cats. And the sooner you find them and start treatment, the better the outcome for your pet. And it's not uncommon for these tests to include feline leukemia and FIV testing, especially in cats who have access to the outdoors and other cats. Um, Fecal tests are recommended to check for intestinal parasites, and so that's something that's good to check yearly. Um, So I think you know, test-wise, those things make sense, what they were recommending. Um, The summary of all of this is that when choosing a veterinarian, It's really important to find one you trust to make recommendations for your pet and that fits your budget. Um, You know, sure there's jerks in every profession, um, but the vast majority of veterinarians are making recommendations for what they truly believe will help your pet. Um, Thanks for your question, Andrew. And remember all, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian. So my guidance is only intended to give you some ballpark info in general so you can discuss with your veterinarian your concerns more effectively and what you can likely expect from their official treatment recommendations. If you'd like to learn more about me, check out champagneandmudboots.com for insights into my life as a working and homeschooling mama, homesteader newbie, and caregiver of 15 or so various animals. Thanks, Jack, and I hope everyone has a great week. Bye.
1: You know, I, I, I do understand that, like, if a vet can't pay the bills, they can't keep the lights on. I get that. I get that, you know, doing vaccinations is part of the revenue stream. And honestly, we take our animals, all of them, to our vets, and we have them do all our vaccinations. And I know I could get it done for less. And I'm going to give you an idea about that in just a second without doing your own vaccinations or what have you. Uh, and I do that because I do really like our veterinarian. Um, the uh, the senior guy, we have like a, a practice that has like eight vets in it. And the senior guy there actually comes out of like bovine and equine. and He did like farm visits and stuff like that. And I have, you know, now two cats. We had three cats, and I have three dogs. And so we spend quite a bit of money with him every year. But I'm not afraid to kind of leverage that to get things out of him that he normally wouldn't do. Like, you know, um, they always try to push you on getting the heartworm test done. Well, if your dogs are continuously on heartworm medication, there is no need for that. So we got past that together. I'm like, look, I bring my animals in here. I spend a lot of money with you every year. I just need an annual prescription so I can buy this stuff online because you charge twice what I can get it for. And and I want you to make a profit and all, but I'm not doing that. And so we got that done. I have an old German Shepherd that really has a hard time getting in and out of our vehicles. All of our vehicles are pretty high from the ground. If we had to bug out with him or something, we'd get him in there. But like, I don't want to take him to the vet and back if I don't have to. So he comes once a year and does a house call for me. And because he comes out of, you know, you don't generally take your horse to the vet. Your vet comes to your horse. And since he comes out of that background, he does it. So I value him and what he does for me enough that I'm willing to not, you know, cut him out when it comes to the, 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 the animals' vaccinations. He's also big on the, like, here's what the government says. But you live out in the county, so you don't have to do what the government says, uh, with the exception of rabies. And here's the frequency these guys really need. And they don't need every vaccination every year. And I appreciate that, so I'm even more willing to work with him and give him more of my business. And I think forming a working relationship with a veterinarian like that and shopping around for the right veterinarian for your needs is a really good idea. I also think, like, if you... Are going to go and spend like three hundred dollars, and most of that's going to be for vaccinations for a cat, and you—that's re- that's going to really set you back, and it's going to really disrupt your life. You shouldn't do it, and and let somebody who can afford to do it be the one that goes and pays for that—an uh, annual—an annual visit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe biannual, with especially animals in their prime. They, if they don't have anything wrong with them and what have you, and they're not exhibiting any bad behaviors and they're eating well, they're not puking, they're not losing hair, they don't have hot spots, I don't know that you need a cat to go to the vet every year. Um but with vaccinations, I do think specifically with outdoor animals, the feline, basically feline AIDS, feline leukemia, um, it, it's, it's a devastating illness for animals, and the vaccine is very effective. Um, so there are, if you look around, like pet stores, feed stores, stuff like that, often have low cost vaccination clinics where you can go in and they have a veterinarian or a vet tech or whatever they need to administer the, the, the injections. And you might have to wait a little bit. You kind of hang out. A lot of times they kind of do, like, right here we have a place called Russell Feeds where I buy all my feed for my ducks. And they'll do like kind of like a, a, a day of it where it's not just the vaccinations are going on. Maybe they have somebody speaking about certain stuff. So when you're waiting, maybe you're learning about you know taking care of chickens or something like that. And it's kind of cool. And as long as your animals are well-behaved, Uh, around other animals and people and not going to cause a problem in a situation like that, then I think that's a really valid way to save money on the cost of your bills. And if there are certain vaccinations you want that you can't get in that type of clinic, there's nothing wrong with then doing your annual checkup, going to your veterinarian and getting those done there and saving money and still giving them a reasonable amount of business. I kind of look at it like I do with glasses. So I recommend a website called Zeni Optical for your glasses. And you can go there and you can see what you can do. But I can buy a decent pair of glasses for $18. That same pair of glasses from my optometrist costs over $300. All right? I'm, I'm okay with you making a profit, I understand, but you ain't making that much on me for a pair, of, especially when, like, okay, I need one pair of really good glasses, and then, like, those 12 to $18 glasses, I need a pair of those in my, every glove box has a pair of prescription glasses and prescription sunglasses. My tackle box has a pair of prescription ja, uh, glasses and, and prescription sunglasses. In each case, I have about 30 bucks into it. I have the same thing in my boat. I have the same thing in my wife's car. That way if I'm ever somewhere and something happens to what I'm wearing, I've got another pair available to me. I'm not buying you know, all of those glasses at 300 to $400 a pair from my optometrist so that he can make a profit and, and, and tell me that, uh, that, that the company that, that grinds the lenses is evil because they, they do grind lenses in China. Because I can't tell the difference between how one lets me see and the other lets me see. And even if I do a decked-out pair, like I would pay like 600 bucks for from him, I can get those glasses for like 100 bucks from Xenia Optical. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not giving away that much of my money. So I have a little bit more of a, uh, a relationship with our vet than I do with an optometrist, and I, I'm a little bit more vested in their practice, and I think that's a good thing. And because I can afford it, I give him all of my business like that. But if I, if I had to think about, well, are we going to be able to pay the light bill this month, then I'm taking my dogs to the low-cost vaccination clinic, and I'm using the vet for the things I need to vet for. And I think it's just being responsible and considerate at the same time. Those are my thoughts on that. Next up, I have a question for Tim Glantz on converting an M101 series military trailer into an
7: overlander off-road trailer. Tim, take it away. Hey, everybody. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an expert panel answer for uh, Chris in Minnesota, who's talking about building an Overlander trailer from, he said, an M101A uh, trailer. And uh, I'll get into the model numbers in a minute here. And he's interested in several things. But uh, he's going to use it for a base camp, possibly some sort of kitchen and a, a rooftop tent on the top. And uh, some of his questions there, uh, I'll go through them. But first of to say, Chris, you said M101A now, in the M101 series of trailers, there was uh the M101 A1, A2, and A3, and there were some significant differences as far as uh what they can do in all those. Um, they all had basically the same frame, and they had basically the same body. In fact, exactly the same body. However, the axles and brake systems were very different. And I'm going to tell you first that you probably – Unless you plan to do a complete axle conversion and put a lot of this into it, don't want an M101A1. Because the A1 series trucks, uh, number one, they did not have brakes except for parking brakes. Number two, they used the old school split ring tire and wheel assembly from a Dodge Power Wagon. And I'm sure Jack can tell you lots of stories about being out with duck-bill hammers and changing the tires on these, but they are a pain. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing or they're damaged, they can be dangerous. You can't find replacement wheels and tires, especially wheels for them, uh, affordably because it is an odd bolt pattern. And um, anymore, more and more tire shops will not even change the tire on one of these rims for you. Uh, However, if you look at the A2 or A3 series, um, they both used an eight lug bolt pattern that is the same as a one-ton Chevrolet pickup, and you can get wheels all over the place. Uh, the difference between the A2 and the A3 is the A3 was slightly wider, had slightly wider fenders, and it was actually designed to use the Humvee wheel and tire. However, you can still put the regular one-ton Chevrolet wheels on it without an issue. In addition, those both come with surge brakes already equipped. So you you have parking brakes and regular trailer brakes. Uh, So if I'm building one and I'm you, I would look for an A1, I mean an A2 or an A3 trailer. Um, Asking about cost, uh, these trailers were lowest in cost about 10 years ago when the Army was really getting rid of a bunch of them. Uh, In that time, you could pick them up in the – five to nine hundred dollar range depending on the trailer. They've gone up somewhat. Uh anymore for a good one oh one series trailer, especially an A two or an A three. Uh I would expect to put anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred in it. If you find it for less, uh even better. Maintenance issues, um they're pretty straightforward trailers. There's not much to go wrong with them. Uh the only parts that really require maintenance, of course your wheel bearings, and you can download the manuals for them online and if you take those uh uh part numbers in there it's easy to convert them to uh civilian part numbers and if i get time before jack posts this show i will uh send him a list of uh some civilian part numbers for the uh some of these common trailers uh if i don't get that sent in feel free to email me tim at oldgrouch.com and i can i can look up some for you and i also show you how how to look it up uh brake parts the wheel cylinders are out there easy to get uh because it's a common one used on trailers and trailer supply houses I will tell you one uh, interesting trick on those. The uh, master cylinder that's used in the surge brake assembly, you can buy it from the trailer manufacturers, and they are going to charge you a pretty good bit. However, the master cylinder from a late 1940s Jeep CJ2 is a direct bolt-in, and you can pick those up uh, for much, much less than the actual trailer master cylinders. And I'm sure it's valved just a little bit differently, but in all honesty, towing it and everything, I haven't uh, seen any any issues at all. Um, asked about legalities on the road. Of course, that's going to vary state by state, but I haven't seen any state where there's not an issue. Some states require trailers to have tags. Some don't. Um, some require trailers to have titles. Some don't. I do know a lot of people uh, register their trailers in Maine if their states give them troubles, especially if you've got a state that wants you to have a, a title and they don't like to give you titles if you bought it without a title and all this other stuff. And also because Maine is a lot cheaper, um, and you don't have to live in Maine to register your trailer in Maine. They will gladly take your money and send you a tag no matter where you live because it's a win-win for the state of Maine. They get your money, and they don't even have your vehicle put anywhere in tear on their highways. That is why if you ever pay attention when you're going down a <clears throat> road, that about half the trailer semi trailers you see out there sometimes will have Maine tags on them. They aren't all coming out of Maine. They're just registering their trailers in Maine because it's cheaper. Um, loadability, you know, it's called a three-quarter ton trailer. When the government says three-quarter tons on their trailer, they are talking about the off-road capability on extreme. Uh, these trailers were rated on the highway for actually 2,250 pounds. And in all truth, they will carry more than that. Now, it is a e- heavy trailer, empty compared to a lot of them. It is uh, 1,300 and some pounds, I think 1,340 or so empty. So keep that in mind when looking at the uh, tow rating on your hitch and on your tow vehicle. Uh, hitch conversion. Um, honestly, a lot of people do convert these to ball hitches and others. I'm not a fan of that. I like pendle hooks. It was designed with a pendle hook. If you get the A2 or A3 with surge brakes, the pendle hook already works. Um, you're, you know, they make, you're not going to gain anything going but to a ball hitch. Uh, and you're going to lose a little bit of off road capability. Now, some guys go to some of these fancier off road hitches and some of these couplers. Uh, I don't see much benefit to those for, for most people, and especially since, it would take a lot of fabrication to make that work with the existing surge brakes. So now you're talking about a brake conversion and everything. Uh, rather, just get a nice uh, mount for a pendle hook and a quality pendle hook to mount your receiver hitch and go with it. And one of the things that is an advantage there is that the uh, uh, trailer thieves out there, a lot of them are not running around with a pendle hook, so that makes it harder to steal. And they make some pretty good locks that you can put through the pendle to secure it also. So I hope that helps. And, yeah, the uh, the 101 series trailers are great ones. Like I said, I'd look for the A2 or A3. I would download the manuals online because they're out there in, in a PDF format, easy to find, and they, uh, they will tell you everything you need to know about the details on these trailers and the maintenance. The one thing I would suggest doing is when you get the trailer, you're not going to know the history of it, open up that military manual, and it will have what it's called uh, uh, the PMCS checks and service, preventive maintenance checks and services, and it'll tell you a daily thing to check, it'll tell you weekly, monthly, and then it'll go into the, the more detailed services where it will have the annual services and sometimes biannual and the others start at the beginning and do every bit of the service by the book all the way through, uh, and that'll include doing wheel bearings, checking all the brakes, doing everything, and then you will know, you will have confidence that everything in that vehicle is ready to go. Because, you know, if you don't, you don't have any idea what kind of shape those wheel bearings are in. You don't have, have any kind of shape what the brakes are in. One thing I will say, uh, if you get an A2 or an A3, the military uses silicone brake fluid, which is DOT-5 in their brakes. Do not put DOT-3 or DOT-4 brake fluid in there. Uh, it will cause the, – they do not mix. They will cause problems. And it will, uh, it will be an issue. So if you want to run DOT 3 because it's much more readily available, flush completely and then change it. Uh, do not just start mixing it. And pay attention to that, too, because if somebody bought this this trailer and didn't know that, they may have mixed it already. Um, and, oh, last, last thought here on your lights. Uh, your military light housings are pretty rugged. If it comes with them on there, your uh, manual that you download will have the schematic uh just take the bulbs out of the military lights put the 12 volt equivalent in there where those are 24s and then change the uh on the side of the frame where the uh uh, trailer cable goes in and hooks on your lights there'll be a little uh box that you can take off and there will be a junction there simply take that box off unplug the first half of your uh, trailer uh, light wire there Uh, the military calls it an intervehicular cable and then there, use, uh, you can take regular civilian plugs, uh, bullet connectors, and connect them into the military ones that will be there and just wire up the uh, light connector, whatever matches your vehicle. That way, if you ever want to go back to the stock military configuration, you can just uh, take that off there and plug the military cable back in. So you can use most of the existing wiring harness. You don't have to cut anything. You just have to get the end piece to connect to your vehicle and change your light bulbs out for 12-volt lights. Hope that helps and gives you a a good starting point on them. Uh, They're good, solid trailers. Uh, They're rugged, and I think it would serve you well. Uh, And uh, Thanks for the great question. As always, Jack, thanks for the great show.
1: Uh, He says, I can tell you a lot of stories about split-ring tires. I I can't because I don't want to. I don't ever want to think about them ever again. And and they can be dangerous. Generally, you you put them into a cage when you inflate them because, well, if you do things the wrong way, they can kill you. Uh, So I agree. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend a person buy a vehicle with a split-ring tire assembly to my worst enemy. Maybe my worst enemy. Maybe Hillary Clinton could, could get one. But anybody else, nah, because she'd have somebody else do all the work on it. So I'd have to really have a contempt for someone to recommend they do that. Um, I will tell you something. Tim mentioned master cylinders. So I got a M101 master cylinder story to tell you about working on military vehicles, especially after they've been through surplus and maybe are not in the best shape. You can get hurt. I had a friend that was a little bit, let's say, perceptually challenged. It was in the military with me who, who knocked himself flat out due to a master cylinder on an M101 trailer. I think it was an A1, if I remember right. Um, but, you gotta get kind of underneath them to get at the top of the master cylinder to take it off, and he put a, I think he put a crescent wrench on it, <laughs> and uh, he trying to pull it off and it got stuck, and so he put his two feet up on the frame of the trailer, and pulled with both hands. You can see where this is going. Um, when it finally came loose, and to be fair, it did. It wasn't like it just slipped off. Um, the wrench hit him almost between the eyes, just above the right eye. Like if you find the orbit in your eye, that place where it comes down to your bone, and you go about, oh, a half inch up and a little bit toward the center from there, right where that spot is or it's kind of a hollow spot there. You feel that with your index finger. Right dead there, smack, and rattled his brain around for him and laid himself out. I'm talking... On the ground, not moving, guys that found him initially was afraid he killed himself and came to and tried to get up, and that didn't work, and ended up on quarters for like three days uh, from having a head injury. Uh, So just be careful working on stuff if you're not a mechanic. And this guy was a mechanic. I'm not going to say he was a good one, but he was a trained mechanic. So um, a lot of the stuff on these old vehicles are going to require some persuasion, Uh, to take apart, get cleaned up, and put back together the way that they need to be. And when you're doing that, be careful. Um, They're not a bad trailer. I don't know that I would do it, though. Overall, I think that the amount of work you'll put into one, you probably could home-build a trailer and do better if you can weld it all. There's a lot of stuff out there that might be better for it. But if you could get it really cheap, then yeah, I mean, they... They do what they're supposed to do, and they are well-built. I'll I'll give you that. Um, I didn't work on them a lot. Uh, Back in the day that I was in the military, um, there was what was called 63 Bravo and 63 Sierra, and then there was what Tim Glantz was, which is a 63 Whiskey. And the whiskeys did things like swapped out engines and stuff like that, uh, third shop maintenance, they called it. Bravo's worked on light wheel vehicles, up to five-ton trucks, and people like me that were Sierras, we worked on things like the 977 Series Hemet, uh, tractor trailers and uh, large variable reach uh, forklifts and stuff like that, really large equipment. But the truth was we all did everything. But we also tried to use what we were supposed to do to our advantage. And working on them little-ass trailers was a pain in the ass. So I always tried to make sure I had something to do with at least like the five tons and above. Uh, and there was plenty to do there. So I didn't have to mess with them that much. Uh, so, yeah. And today, because because no one really wanted to do my job, and that's why I picked it because the promotion points were low. Nobody wanted to do my job. My job was like 60% of their strength. And since everybody kind of ended up doing everything anyway, uh, like when I was deployed, I did the 63 whiskey job for six months. I was swapping transmissions and motors and stuff like that, even though technically it was outside of my MOS. The Army decided to hell with this, and they combined everything into one MOS 63 whiskey, swallowing up Bravo and Sierra. So there's a little... Army history lesson. Uh, let's take a look at my question for you guys today. So, John and Moore Park sent me this article called The Strange Allure of Pioneer Living um, How Shay Elliott Became the Gwyneth Paltrow of America's Grobing Homesteading Movement. Now, I know who Gwyneth Paltrow is, but I don't know who Shay Elliott is. And until I saw this article, I never heard of her before in my life. So, I'm going to call a little bit of yellow journalism there. Um, and uh, John from Moore Parker sent to me, he said, I have not heard of Elliot before this article. Yeah, me too, bro. And he says, does this seem accurate to you? And here's a quote from the article. I'm not going to read the article. There's a link if you want to read the whole thing. I think your IQ will go down a few points if you read it all. I skimmed it because I started to feel stupider, so I stopped. But let me read this one piece to you. Abandoning the status quo in itself is a luxury. Elliot estimates that starting a homestead like hers demands at least $25,000, not including the land. And I guess that would be not including a house either. And she's a pretty decked out homestead. I would call it a luxury homestead. And I guess the key then is like hers. See, I think that this is actually part of what I've started to refer to as the Oppression Olympics the oppression olympics and there's there's two types of players in the oppression mm-hmm. Olympics. One is the people that are actually the Olympians, and the oppression Olympics are like you know well, I'm black, so i i'm I'm put down well, but I'm a transgendered uh, d- d- jockey uh, so I am even more oppressed than you. Oh, well, no, I'm, I'm I'm half Native American, half Mexican, and, 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 and a transgendered uh, Octavian, right? So I am the most oppressed, and it's like this race to the bottom. And so there's that group, and I don't think this lady's in that group, but the other group is the people that want to be accepted by the Olympians in the, in the oppression Olympics. And they're the ones that that are always walking around. You know, they're white people with lots of money walking around talking about how they have white privilege and every white person, like I agree with you and I hate them too, even though I'm one of them. And I'm ashamed that I i am white and uh sis. And therefore uh, I, I would like to be accepted as an honorary uh, member of the oppression Olympics. And I think there's a little bit of that going on here. Um, but we'll leave that as an aside. That's just, I think, where the attitude comes from with journalists wanting to write crap like this, okay? Uh, now, let's talk about the actual thing. Does setting up a, a, a working homestead take $25,000? Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, really? Like, like again, that starts to make you dumber for, for asking. Um, I'll just take you back to what, what homesteading was for me as a teenager uh, taking care of my grandparents' stuff. They had about a three-quarter acre piece of property and kind of a long, thin, three-quarter acre piece of property. And down at the bottom of it, there was a a garden that was about ten rows of growth that were about 25 foot long and four foot wide. Because they had good soil, they did not have wood around them. These weren't what you think of as conventional raised beds. Uh, every year, my grandfather would send me down there with an edger and a shovel and a, and a piece of string and a couple nails so that the beds were straight. So I would, you know, put the nails in the ground and I would go through and I would cut the grass that, that had grown in, the saw that had grown in, in over the winter, uh, and I would double dig the beds, old fashioned style. That cost us nothing because he made me do it. Uh, I actually liked doing it, so we ended up with, uh, like 14 beds because i put in some more that went because they the way they went across they were about 25 ish feet if you look at think of them going vertical and then switching to horizontal so down at the bottom i put in some extra rows and we planted some one we put in a big wide row of about 12 feet we planted it with corn and i wanted to grow some stuff that they didn't grow like banana peppers and squash so i ended up extending that garden that also cost us nothing my grandparents were big on saving most seeds from their produce, so in general we didn't buy seed. Uh, we let the garlic go to had little seed heads on it, and that's where we propagated uh, some of the garlic from. And the other garlic, we would just take the extra garlic uh, that was left over from the prior season, break it into cloves, and throw it in the ground. Um, that's how that worked. There were a few plants that he bought seeds for because saving seeds for him was not practical. Uh, among those would be like cabbage and broccoli and and cauliflower. So that we would do, but the beans, the cucumbers, all of that was save seeds. And he grew the same thing every year because once he found what worked, he didn't change it. That literally cost nothing. Maybe four or five packs of seeds you can get for a couple dollars a pack. That that was the entire expense there. Um mostly it was rainwater during the heat height of summer. I would water a little bit. You can figure out what that costs, it's not much. They had a chicken coop, they had a few chickens and one goose, and uh that chicken coop was built out of wood that I'm sure he scavenged from like the dump and things people threw away. And I can't believe he had a hundred dollars in today's money in building that chicken coop. Now, if you're going to go out and you're going to get a a chicken coop, that they call a chicken coop, that looks like a fancy doghouse for like four chickens to live in, and you're going to spend $1,000 for it, I'm not going to put you down more power to you, but I'm not going to be surprised when by the time you end up up finished with setting up your homestead, you're in it for $25,000, you know, um... If you, if you're smart, we talked about ducks yesterday. You know, you get a couple of muscovy ducks, which you can probably go catch at a local park where they're not even supposed to be there, where people have tossed them away. Uh, and then you've got a base of a duck flock and you've got a broody animal that will brood other animals. So even if you go out and buy some specific breed that you want, now your muscovies can breed. Now you don't have a cost associated with those. Now you got to feed them, but you get a return on that. And if it costs you, a pound to produce ducks, that's like a third of what it costs to buy them in the store. So I I just think this whole article is written from some kind of a nonsensical concept. What this woman is doing isn't really, and it talks about how she went to the city and she had to get away because everything smelled like Febreze and and Lysol and oh my God. (laughs) No, what she's doing is living like a yuppie on a homestead. She doesn't want to give up anything, and she wants to have everything she wants. Okay, that's going to cost money, and that's how everything is. Uh, I am an aquarium enthusiast, and when I set up an aquarium, I have quite a bit of money into an aquarium when I set it up, because I want it to go fast, and I want to have what I want, and since I can afford it, I do it. But I'm not going to sit here and say, well, it takes $1,000 to set up a 50-gallon aquarium. you, You can spend that. You don't have to. There's other ways to do it. And you can end up with the same thing I have. It'll just take you longer to get there. huh? So that's how this all works. And, and I, I do think a lot of this, you know, it's a luxury in of itself to be able to homestead. Well, tell that to the the, the, the millions of people in this country that live as homesteaders because that's what they can do it it's amazing you will say stuff like that but you go to rural parts of like West Virginia and Arkansas and every single person is a homesteader and some of those people don't make $25,000 a year let alone have 25,000 to sink into establish a homestead it's just it's preposterous on its face and what you have again is you have a person that wants to live like they're in the city while they live in the country and, and and half their livestock they look at like pets, and, and and they have the best of everything. And then yeah, well it costs her twenty five grand. Well that's what it costs you, and that's the key here. Where the, the, it's like yellow journalism, but not a lie. Uh, starting a homestead like hers demands. If you want to do it like her, exactly the way she did it, and you want to live like her, and you want to get there really quick, well then yeah maybe it does. But. I find things like this to be wrapped into that whole, you know, kind of world of the white privilege. And and then also, my, my bigger problem with it is, first of all, don't tell me that this chick, whoever the hell she is, is Gwyneth Paltrow of Homesteading. When, like, I bet you, I'm going to hear from very few people in this audience of 200,000 people, most of whom are into this kind of thing, who even know who the hell she is. So then, what you're doing really is you're not presenting this to people that already know. You're presenting this to people who who have a a, a fancy toward it, like they're they, they're like interested in it, and they don't really know. And they're told like, well, this woman is the, the Gwyneth Paltrow of. What the hell are you talking about? Freaking nonsense! I I I have no idea who this person is. I I really have no idea who this person is. When I looked her up. Uh, she's an author that looks more like a fashion model than a homesteader, and apparently she wiggled her way into a show on Food Network, but when you look up her, her, her bio on Food Network, she doesn't even rate high enough for them to put her picture on the page. So if she is the Gwyneth Paltrow of homesteading, I, I don't know, I'm freaking the George Clooney and Robert Downey Jr. combined of podcasting. I mean, really, it's just, so, Mike, my concern here with nonsense like this when it gets spit out on the interwebs is that the people that want to give this type of lifestyle a shot are discouraged from it because it's so expensive. You guys know, if you, if you take the approach of lifestyle design around some level of agrarian component to your life in your backyard, well, then you don't spend more in the long run you spend less because you're produ- i mean it, it, it's all in how you do things like what I see this as being a person like, well, I want to move away I want to move away, but then i want I want a house that's like a Victorian or some shit and whatever and if that's what you want and all but like having this kind of weird idea of what this means and everything's going to be manicured and you know what have you and it's going to look like a a homestead in an HOA uh, on, on, on a couple acres or something like that and I just think it's nonsensical. You know, if you start saying, well, I want horses and I'm going to put in a tack room and, a, and you know, stalls and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I mean, you start adding up your costs real quick. And I want a riding corral and shit. That's not homesteading. That's being an equestrian. You know, if you're going to go into cattle and you're raising beef cattle and you're putting in infrastructure like you're raising, a, a, you know, 40 head a year and you're raising one for yourself. Well, you're just stupid. You're just stupid. And, again, I think it goes back to this kind of kind of elitist, but I want to not be elitist, and I want to be accepted by everybody, and so I'm going to admit my privilege type of thing. And it's just dumb. And if you guys come across stuff like this, don't even pay any, any mind to it. If you want to send it to me, see if it puts me off on another rant, that's fine. But in the end, you know, this is homesteading. Where you live is your home. Now homestead that. If you live in a half acre in the suburbs, go put some gardens in, go put some quail in, go put some rabbits in, and then tie that system together so the rabbits are producing fertility for the garden, but that fertility is going through some processing by the chickens that then goes to the garden, the garden waste is going to the chickens, the garden's producing some of the food for the rabbits, and that whole system's intertwined. And you can do all that for 500 bucks or less. So this is nonsense. Again, if you would like, like if you're just thinking, you know what, Jack, I'm too freaking smart for my own good. And for at least a couple of days, I'd like to cripple my IQ without the use of alcohol. Then go read this article. It'll probably drop your IQ 10 to 15 points. The good news is by Monday when we come back, your IQ will be back and you'll be ready to take on the high level of intellectual conversation we have here at the Survival Podcast. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I want to remind you that one of the ways you can support our show is by uh, joining the Member Support Brigade. If you want to know more about that, go ahead on over and Click on members to sign up. And, guys, I'm sorry. i got too much going on this week. I wanted to get a sale out for you. I'm going to launch that sale on Monday. We'll do a week-long sale on MSB, so don't join today. But what you can do is do your online shopping today and this weekend at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. And today, my item of the day is one I've brought around a lot of times. I love this product. You want this product in your life. It's on sale a couple of bucks less than normal right now. It'd be a, if, you, if you have a person in your life that wants this thing, it'd be a great Christmas present. Go ahead and knock it out. It's the Shard slash Carry 9.5 quart smart pressure canner and cooker. I'm not going to go through it all again. I'm just going to say, yes, you can pressure can with this device. No, not all pressure cookers and electric pressure cookers can be used to pressure can. This one can. There's one other one that can. That's the Power uh, Power Pressure Cooker XL. No, the Instapot cannot. This is a true pressure canner, so it does that. But it does all the shit a thing like an Instapot does. So I want to tell you what we just did with ours. First, I love this for making ribs. I haven't smoked a rack of ribs since I got this thing. I throw the ribs in there for about 50 minutes I take them out and let them cool completely down so they firm up. I hit them with some barbecue sauce, put them on the grill until they crisp around the edges. Best ribs you'll ever eat. I mean it. They just are. Uh, but I made stew the other day. And it was so easy because, like, the, the Dorothy took some stew meat out, and I kind of forgot about it. And, stew, you know, you want three, four hours of slow simmer, maybe more. And I, I'm like, i just going to do it in the in the pressure cooker. So all we did to do this, I dumped a beer in it. Actually, well, let's start off at the beginning. So I didn't want – Okay. Um, you can set it to brown, so the liner, you pull the little rack for, for, uh, for, for steaming and for canning out. So you got a base-bottom, uh, stick-free surface. Turn that on, threw some onions and garlic in there, and sauteed them with the meat. So I got the meat browned a little bit. Then I dumped in a beer. Dorothy cut up about four stalks of celery and four carrots for me. We threw those in. And I got those little round potatoes, those ones that are about the size you just eat with a fork, one at a time, perfect fork size. I just threw those in there. Uh, Salt and pepper to taste. uh, Some fresh parsley, threw a handful of fresh parsley in there. A little bit of thyme, a little bit of rosemary. uh, And then locked it down and ran it for 45 minutes. And when it was done, I mixed up a little bit of flour slurry, stirred it in to thicken the broth. Best stew you, you would think it was stew that sat for five hours at 225 degrees. Just perfect. You can can with it, but you can also cook with it. And that's something that things like the Instapot cannot offer you. You can't can with them. You can pressure can with this, which means you can also can things that you would normally can with a water bath can. You're just pressure canning those things. Uh, so if you, as long as you follow the recipe for canning for a known recipe for the right times and you adjust the pressure if you're at higher elevations. It comes with two petcocks. Take the one off, put the other one on. You're golden. It will work. It cannot fail. It purges the steam for you. It doesn't matter how you get enough pressure, just that you get enough pressure. So uh, I really recommend if you don't have one, get one. I call it the Shard Carry because Carry Company makes this. It's also called the Shard. They keep changing the name on the outside of it. It's the same company. So I actually explained that in the review. Check it out again. It is uh, it, This thing's gone in and out of stock a bunch of times. Uh, I, I don't know if I have anything to do with that, but uh, it is available right now. You can get it. And you haven't gotten one yet. Be a good Christmas present for yourself or for someone else. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. I went off a of John Adams' script today. Um, I'm going to try to get back in line, because he's got stuff blo- broken out by weeks for me, and now I've kind of messed it up. So I'm going to call a few audibles here to try to get back in sync with his schedule. Uh, but um, I've just had kind of a hankering for real music lately. Real music. Not, not that John's not bringing real music, but there's certain music that I just love. And... Uh, You know, that's in in real country, like Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard, especially if you put them together. And uh, so today I have a song that Willie and Merle did. It's actually a cover. A lot of people, I don't think you even know it's a cover. Uh, The writer of this song and and the original performer, though, didn't go anywhere when he performed it. He doesn't really have any big hits that he's performed. Good writer. A guy's named Towns Van Zandt. And um, he wrote this. A lot of people think this is Poncho and Mexico Revolutionaries and all. I think it's Poncho Villa. He's like, that's nothing to do with it. Um, he said, I realize I wrote it, but it's hard to take credit for writing it because it came out of the blue. It came through me, and it's a real nice song. And I think I finally found out what it's about. I've always wondered what it's about. I kind of knew it wasn't about Pancho Villa. And then somebody told me that Pancho Villa had a buddy whose name in Spanish meant lefty. But in the song, my song, Pancho gets hung. They only let him hang around out of kindness, I suppose. And uh, the real Pancho Villa was assassinated. But uh, in 1994, Merle and Willie, Merle Hagger and Willie Nelson did a video of this song. And Van Zant gets the cameo as one of the Federales that takes down Poncho. Presumably with the help of Double Crossing Lefty, but that doesn't really say that in the song. And, and I just have always loved this song, so I wanted to play it for you on a Friday. Um, and I kind of like the whole take of this song, that the one guy goes down. And, and I get the feeling in the lyrics that, like, you got two guys on the wrong side of the law here, but Poncho's kind of like, the actual really bad guy, and lefty's kind of this guy that ended up kind of along for the ride. And whether he double crossed him or just managed to get away and runs off, and then he, he, he dies kind of this, this, this old man that really can't even tell his story because he's this guy just, you know, rotting away in Ohio in the snow and just it's this is American music this is Americana at its finest and I hope you enjoyed today's show and I hope you enjoyed today's song choice with that this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't
2: living on the road my friend was gonna keep you free and clean Now you wear your skin like iron, and your breath is hard as kerosene.
7: You weren't your mama's only boy, but her favorite one, it seemed. She began to cry when you said
2: goodbye. Sank into your dream.
7: Pancho was a banded boy, his horse was fast as far is steel, he wore his gun outside his hands,
2: for all the
7: honest world to feel, Pancho met his match you know, on the deserts down in Mexico, and nobody heard his
5: dying. way
7: Sound. He ended up and left his mouth. The day they laid for Poncho low,
2: left his split for Ohio, where he got the bread to go. There ain't nobody.
7: Cleveland's cold So the story ends We're told I to need your prayers It's true
5: Save a few Lefty too He only did what he had